hey, this is nice. <laughs> I haven't seen all this in a while. Uh, so uh, I want to start off just quickly. In, in two weeks, we're going to have a service that uh, is more of a welcome back service. We're going to have a, a meal afterwards and, and, and a few things like that. Uh, and, and I'm going to give a lesson that uh, hopefully will we'll, uh, give some biblical perspective on what you might call sacred space or, or space that we use uh, for, for worship and, and some of that. And I'm not going to do that today, but it will going to come in a couple of weeks. But I do want to say, uh, before we get to that, uh, just, just initially, how thankful I am for this congregation, how thankful I am for uh, this church family here, and for all of those who have contributed, because this is something that every one of us had to sacrifice for in some ways. Uh, I want to thank you for your generosity in making this happen. I want to thank you for the, the actual physical work that you put in, whether it was uh, here on a work day or some point uh, you know, over the last eight months or so, or, or just putting up the chairs and all that took place in the other building to make it work. That required of you, and I am, I'm very appreciative and thankful. Uh, I'm thankful uh, not only for your generosity and for your work, but also your patience and, and your endurance as you waited. This was something we all had to wait for. And and there's an extent to which waiting and being patient is something we all have to do in our lives for a lot of things, but it's also an important part of the Christian walk. It's also an important part of the Christian life. There are parables that Jesus tells where he'll emphasize a long delay in the master's return, or he'll emphasize the wheat and the tares growing up together, and the workers want to get out there and fix the problem. And he says, no, we got to wait until the, the harvest comes, and that's when things will be separated. A lot of the parables deal with waiting. And whether it is waiting for, uh, you know, your, your dinner to be cooked or whether you're waiting for uh, a building to be finished or you're waiting for the ultimate glorious promised land, waiting is a part of our existence. And, and I want to thank you for your patience and I want to thank you for, uh, for your Christian attitudes during the wait. But as we talk about waiting, I want to get into the book of Romans for just a minute. Uh, because the book of Romans, we've been going through it, and we're going to cover quite a bit today. And we'll, we'll, I just noticed, by the way, one of, one of the changes, and you guys aren't going to like this, uh, there's no clock in the back. So, so this is, <laughs> I have all the time I need to get us through uh, the Romans. No, uh, we are... Uh, we are going to uh, be covering a good bit of information uh, from Romans 7 and 8, and so we're going to be summarizing. Romans 7 and 8 is, is particularly dense, and there are a lot... <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, there is a clock in the back now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that was a quick fix. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, I didn't have to be patient for that. <laughs> Everything else. But... Uh, so there's a lot of information in Romans 7 and 8, and uh, so we're going to zoom out a little bit, and we're going to try to grasp and to cover what the key ideas are, because I do think sometimes in our Bible study, particularly in some, some dense sections, you can zoom in so close that you find out what every word means, and you don't know what the chapter means, or you don't know what the point is. And so we're going to try to zoom out a little bit, and hopefully walk away with what is, what is Paul's point and what's going on here. Um, we've been reading Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 as kind of our retelling of the Exodus narrative or the story of the Old Testament as a whole. Like going back to Romans 5, you have Adam who brought sin and death into the world. 
But then you have our Adam, the new Adam, the better Adam, who is Christ, the firstborn from the dead, who brought life and righteousness and justification into the world. Adam brought sin and death. Jesus brought forgiveness and life. And Jesus is now our Adam. So we're living in a new world story here. We have a new narrative with a new introduction and a new key head figure. But then you move on from that and you have in chapter 6 this, this exodus out of slavery. Chapter 6 talks about slavery to sin that we have been freed from. And you can go back and look at the Exodus story, how Israel was, was in slavery to Egypt, but then they had their freedom from slavery through the mighty, powerful act of God. And our Exodus story is seen in Jesus on the cross and his victorious resurrection, which gives us freedom from sin and death that held this world captive. So we not only have a new and greater Adam, but we have a new and greater Exodus story. And these, these contrasts continue in the story of the book of Romans, whether it's Adam versus Jesus, slavery to sin versus obedience to God, or what we're going to have in chapters 7 and 8, the idea of living in flesh, which is that slavery to sin, which is that life under Adam, versus life in the spirit which is life in Christ as the new Adam and, and the, the freedom from slavery that we have in Jesus with him as our new master and our new Lord. And so we're going to see the way that, that Paul weaves this together. But I think of it as kind of like that, that you've gone through the sea, the waters of baptism or the Red Sea, leaving slavery behind. But, but if you read the story uh, through the book of Numbers, you realize that crossing the Red Sea didn't mean it was smooth and easy sailing into the promised land. Uh, no, there was a long, difficult journey ahead. There was a journey with some wins and an awful lot of losses. There was the reception of the law, the entering into a covenant, and there was a change in the whole story of Israel that took place during 40 years of trouble and stress and turmoil. But they did enter the promised land. The waiting and the struggle was not the end of the story. They were victorious, and they did receive the promises of God. And so as we read through Romans 7 and 8, I think we'll see some of that same story playing out. We'll see the wins and the losses. We'll see the struggle. We'll see the hardship. But we can also give thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can also see the entrance into the promised land and the hope that we have of a future and glorious and better day through the gift of the Spirit. And so as we read through Romans uh, 7 and, uh, and 8... I think we need to know that the story of mankind without Christ is the story of Adam that brings sin and death into this world. You have Adam, you have slavery to sin, you have death, you have law. And law is, is, is an interesting part of that because Paul puts law in that part of the story. But he has to explain why he does that. Why is law part of the story of slavery and death and Adam and sin and all of that stuff? Because the law, and he's very clear about this, the law is good. He wants you to know that the law is good. He does not want any mistake to be made that the law is bad or the law is somehow sinful or the law brought sin. That's, that's, not, that's not what the law does. The law is good and teaches us the good will of God. And it teaches us how to be who God wants us to be. So the law was an excellent thing. It was a gift to Israel and it was something that was and still is a wonderful, glorious, good gift from God. But sin, which had entered and run rampant in God's world, hijacked the law so that the law became a tool of sin to bring about the fall of mankind. But Paul will discuss how 
how the law, it taught us the will of God, but it didn't actually transform who you were. So all it did was it created this division within humanity to where like the Israelites or Paul himself describes it, they know the right thing to do. They now know who they want to be and they now know uh, the, the good will of God and there's this good that they want to do. But then as they actually live their lives in the flesh, they don't do it. It's like it transformed my mind enough so that I now know the good, but that didn't transform me. And so there's now this discontinuity between who I am and who I want to be. And it's a continuity I think we can all understand. I think it's something when you're in the wilderness, it's how you feel. It's like I know what I want to do, but I also know the failures of daily life that I live in every day. And Paul describes that as like living in that world of Adam. Living in that world where you are not living to the good that you know exists. Uh, so like Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 14. I'm going to read a couple of verses here that describe this battle. In Romans 7, 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual. So like again, it's good. Even the law is spiritual. It comes from God itself. But I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Right, that, that's the idea of slavery to sin. Remember, Romans 6, there's a point where you're in slavery to sin, but then you're freed from that and you become uh, uh, obedient to Christ where he is now your master. Well, he's discussing that, that slavery to sin and the role that the law played in that. And the law didn't actually solve that problem. It just grew, uh, it caused in us an awareness of the problem, and then that caused this this disheartening realization that I'll never be able to solve this problem because as long as I'm living in the flesh, I continue to fall short of the goodness of God. And so verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So it's like the, you, you are agreeing that the law is good when you have this struggle because mentally you recognize the law is good and my flesh is, is, is leading me in ways that are bad. And so I, by doing the bad, you're confessing the good, but that doesn't really solve your problem. And so what will solve your problem? Well, Paul goes on to describe this, this inner turmoil that I think is universal to mankind. And he talks about uh, in verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. He says in verse 24, finally, after discussing this imprisonment that he feels, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? All right, so as you try to live under law, you end up recognizing that I am sinful and the law causes me to see that sinfulness every day. And so the only conclusion I come to is that I'm a wretched man who's in need of somebody to set me free. Isn't it wonderful that the story doesn't end there? There is someone who comes to set you free. There is someone who comes to pull you out of this vicious cycle. And this happens not through the flesh or through sin or through Adam or through slavery to sin or through death. That's all on that side of the story. What we move into in chapter 8 is how we're pulled out of this. We're pulled out of this by the victory that we have through Jesus Christ. To where we no longer are driven and motivated and living by the flesh. But actually the spirit is what's given to us. The spirit is what we receive when we die to this world. So this idea of dying and rising again to a new way of life, 
That is the story of Romans 6. That's the story of your baptism. Uh, In Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, this is kind of his introduction to this whole conversation that we've just been talking about. In Romans 7, 5 and 6, he says, While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So that way of life, notice the words he uses there, flesh, sinful, law, and death. Those all kind of ended up working together. Even though the law was good, the law was used to bring about this, uh, this vicious cycle of sin. I mean, the more laws there are, the more opportunity to sin there is. And since we weren't transformed, uh, we continued in the flesh, we just disobeyed the law, and so we ended up falling into this vicious cycle of sin. But, verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. When did we die in the context of Romans 6 uh, and 7 and this whole section? That's, a, that's baptism language. We died with Christ. This is Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? So that death caused an end to this way of life of sin and law and death that reigned since Adam. And it brings this new way of life of the spirit and of righteousness. So verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. And he introduces to us the idea of the spirit that is going to be the the driving topic throughout Romans chapter 8. Because how is it that this transformation takes place? How is it that we live in this new world of Christ as our, as our Savior rather than the world of Adam? How do we live in the new world of, of obedience and reconciliation and goodness and life rather than death and slavery to God rather than slavery to sin? How does this happen? Well, I think there are a couple of gifts, a couple of things that we are assured of in Romans chapter 8 that will help this transformation take place. And one of them is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given so that we are no longer driven and motivated and led by the flesh, but by we are led by the very presence of God in our lives. Uh, When you look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, it starts with this awesome verse that says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So even with that turmoil and battle and all of that struggle, you can have confidence that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ because as you get down to verse 4, When he says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have a new walk in front of us. We have a new way of life. And as you read through Romans 8, he'll say quite a few things that the spirit does for us on this journey. The spirit is the one who leads us and gives us this path forward. And Paul doesn't discuss all of the ways in which the spirit does this. And sometimes it's controversial when you talk about what the spirit does or does not do. Does the spirit do this through the Bible? I think absolutely the spirit does this through the Bible. It'd be crazy to say otherwise. Uh, Does the spirit do this through the community of believers of which you now become a part where you receive mutual encouragement? Absolutely, I think the Spirit does it through the the community of which you live who are now encouraging and strengthening you. I think the Spirit works on your heart. I think the Spirit works through your community of faith. I think the Spirit works through Scripture. I think the Spirit works through prayer. I don't think there's going to be many areas of your life where you can exclude the Spirit and say, but the Spirit can't be here. Uh, So so Paul doesn't get overly specific here as to how exactly the Spirit does it, but we know the Spirit does it. And I think that's really, really crucial and really, really important. Paul is not excluding 
excluding the Spirit from avenues and areas of your life. Or here you receive, you know, uh, strength through your rationality and your logic, but here's through the Spirit. I think that's a, that's a wrong kind of, of, of uh, dichotomy to draw up. The Spirit is working in all ways to bring about in us who God wants us to be. And when he does this, he changes our mindset so that we're not living in the mindset of the flesh, but in the mindset of the Spirit. And he changes us from, from people who are destined to death to the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now alive in us to raise us from the dead. And I think that talking in two ways there. One, raise us from the death that we have in sin, like right now when we're raised up in a new life with Christ. But then also in the glorious age to come, when we receive the resurrection, the spirit that raised Jesus is the same spirit that is given to us so that we can receive the resurrection as well. As you continue reading, you find out that this gift of the Spirit will help us even through the turmoil and the hardship of this life, because there will be suffering, there will be pain, and there will be need for patience. As a matter of fact, not only does God help this transformation by the gift of the Spirit, but also by the gift of hope, which the Spirit helps guide us through, but also hope. Uh, hope becomes a major topic from verses 18 through 25, where he talks about this hope in, in numerous ways, this hope through suffering. He talks about this hope in, in like the most cosmic and grand scale that you could think of. Hope of all creation. He personifies all creation in this as itself longing for that day of redemption, where just like our bodies are longing for that future day, even the creation that God made is longing for the new heavens and the new earth. Even the creation that God made is longing to be set free from the corruption that sin brought into it. I mean, you read the Genesis story and you find out when humanity brought sin into this world, it didn't only affect humanity. It set all of creation off, off kilter. So that when, when God speaks of childbirth, now there's tremendous pain in childbirth. When God speaks to Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. He actually doesn't say cursed are you because of your sin. The ground ended up receiving this curse. And this ground, as we read through, you can pay attention to the land a lot in the Bible, and you'll see that the land is often personified. And here in Romans 8, the ground itself, the earth itself, creation itself, is crying out for something new and something better. In the same way that our bodies are crying out and groaning for something better. In fact, if you look at the word groan, look at verse 22 of chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. It's like creation is like going through the pains of childbirth, wanting to bring forth a new creation, wanting to bring forth something great, but there's groaning right now. And then we, verse 23, not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves as we long for, eagerly as we long for that day of redemption. So like creation's groaning, we are groaning, and do you know what the Spirit does with us? The Spirit of God actually groans right alongside us. When you look at verse 26, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the creation groans, we groan, and even God, through the Spirit, groans on our behalf for this ultimate day of redemption in which we hope. This hope, in verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he already sees? 
But if we hope in what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Patient hoping through suffering with the gift of the Spirit will give us the strength that we need. It's hard to endure when there's no hope of something better. But the hope that we have through the Spirit gives us confidence that victory will occur. And I want to conclude by reading just some of Paul's words because I'm quite certain he can say it far better than I do. It's one of the most beautifully written and encouraging passages of Scripture. And I'm going to end by talking about not only has God given us the Holy Spirit to help this transformation take place, not only has God given us hope so that we never lose this, this, this path forward and we never lose sight of what ultimately matters most, but he also has assured us victory And that means something. That victory comes through his love. Because God loves you. You might live in a world where you don't always feel loved. Or people don't always love you as they should. Or maybe your worth or your value. You've you've attached it to this idea of law. Which you see yourself not keeping. And so you end up feeling this inner turmoil. And you end up feeling this conflict. Oh, wretched man that I am, as Paul says. But chapter 8 ends not with the declaration of some wretched man. But chapter 8 ends with this glorious depiction of the love of God that gives you the victory that you could not achieve on your own. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen or his elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. For who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For it is written, for your sake, we are put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter, but in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The victory we have in Christ... The, the promise that we have of ultimate victory is the hope that we have that can get us through the struggles of this life as we battle daily to live in the Spirit. But trust in the gift of the Spirit. Never lose sight of the hope that God has for you and rest in the confidence of the victory that he has promised. And if we can help you do that this morning, if we can help anyone here turn your life over to Christ, begin this process of transformation, die to sin in baptism, and be raised up to live in a new life with Christ, with a new future and a new hope, we pray that you let that be known. Please come and uh, sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.